Have you ever looked forward to something with an excited anxiousness? Something that you just couldn't hardly wait for it to get here. It could be a ball game, could be concert tickets that you got. Maybe it's a wedding day or a vacation that you've planned that you've been dying to go on. A dream vacation for so long. Maybe it's an online order. How many of y'all like the worst invention ever was the ability to track your order online because you absolutely obsess over that tracking number? I mean, like you're checking it every 30 minutes. Even though 30 minutes ago it hadn't left the warehouse, you're going to check it again. And guess what? It's probably still going to be at the warehouse. But some of y'all, when it comes to tracking your online orders, just obsess over that. And then if you're like me, you've got like one of those ring doorbells now that notifies you every time something moves in front of it. So as you know, you've got a package on the way. Every time that thing goes off, you're looking at it. You're like, oh, is the FedEx guy? UPS? Online order? Dying, waiting for it to get there because it's just the greatest thing ever. Like you've never gotten a package before that excited anxiousness. So that's kind of how I felt leading up to this moment with the message God has given me to share you. Excited, but anxious. And I'm excited about the word that God has for us tonight, but I'm kind of anxious to give it to you because I want to caution you as we move forward. It's challenging. And listen, challenge always forces choice. We can either choose to receive it or we can choose to reject it. And so my prayer for us is that as we are challenged with God's word, we would receive it together. And as we come to Joshua chapter 22 tonight, just a little bit of context before we get into the narrative of the story. Joshua and the people of Israel have entered into the promised land and they fought battle after battle and they've made their way through the land. And as we get to the end of the book... The people are starting to settle in to the allotted inheritance land plots that God had set out in specific for each tribe. So as they're settling in, things are kind of calming down. And for once, the nation of Israel is actually going to enjoy some peace and rest from all the enemies that they had battled to get to that point. So we're going to start in verse 9 here in a moment, and then we're going to read through verse 34. So I hope you all like story time because it's kind of an extensive passage but we've got to get the whole context of the story for it all to make sense tonight. So in verse 9, Joshua chapter 22, God's word says, So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? 
Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow He will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon the whole congregation of Israel. And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, God, the Lord. The Mighty One, God, the Lord. He knows, and let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord Himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. Your children have no portion in the Lord. So your children might take our, make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in His presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. And when Phineas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phineas the son of Eleazar the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. And the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So nudge somebody next to you because they probably fell asleep during that time and tell them, let's have a witness between us. Let's have a witness between us. It'll make sense at the end. Here's my title for our consideration tonight. Draw your line. Draw your line. The people of Israel have made their way through the promised land, conquering and taking possession of it, along the way, and all the tribes are getting settled into their allotted pieces of inheritance. Now remember, this has been a long time coming for these people. 
They had endured 400 years of Egyptian bondage. After that, they went through 40 years of wilderness wanderings. They fought battle after battle, facing giants and all kinds of adversity along the way. They had suffered through plague as a punishment for their sin. And finally, things were as they should be. As a matter of fact, in Joshua chapter 21, in the previous chapter, in verses 43 through 45, it says that the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side just as He had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Aren't you thankful that the promises of God stand true and firm without fail? These people had finally gotten to a place where they had rest from their enemies. All the things that God had promised to give them and to do on their behalf had come to pass. And you would think that the last thing that they would want to do would be fight. And yet they're about to go to war, not with enemies, but with each other. The text tells us that these three tribes, Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, had built an altar on the shores of the Jordan River. Now you need to understand historically that at this point the true altar of the Lord was in the sanctuary located at Shiloh. And so when Israel saw this one, they thought it was done out of rebellion. They thought that these people were setting up an altar for false worship, for a false god to offer sacrifices to. And so when they saw that, they go and they assemble together and they prepare to confront these other three tribes for the things that they had done. As it turns out, it was all a complete huge misunderstanding. These people had built this altar as a copy so it would stand as a witness of their unity with the rest of the nation of Israel that had settled beyond the Jordan. Because they were concerned that one day their kids would say, well, how come you are, are over here and the rest of our people are on this side? I guess y'all didn't have anything to do with the Lord. Y'all didn't want to have anything to do with God. And they said, that's not why we built We built it so it would stand as a witness so that one day our kids could see it and ask, hey, what's this right here? And they could say, let me tell you about the faithfulness of our God and how He unified us together as a people. And so what ended up almost breaking out in war was completely over a misunderstanding. But the point is that I want you to see tonight is that the nation wasn't going to tolerate false gods or false worship. They had been there and done that. As a matter of fact, Phineas, who was a fierce man of God, when he saw this, became the leader of the people that were going to go to war. And he references two particular instances of sinfulness that had hindered the people moving into the promised land. One instance was at Peor. One instance was Achan when he sinned against God at the fall of Ai. And so after they had been there and done that, after they had gone through those struggles, after they had gone through those battles, after they had gone through the punishment that they had incurred because of their rebellion, once they saw this going up and thought that it was happening again, they weren't going to have it. They had assembled together and said, we're going to put an end to this before it ever gets started because we're done with the sinfulness. We're done with the rebellion against God. I'm not going back into that wilderness for another 40 years. I'm done with that. They drew their line. This is the challenge that God has placed so deeply within my heart. All throughout Scripture, I've become more and more aware of this here lately than ever in my life. All throughout Scripture, we're told to flee. We're told to run from. We're told to have nothing to do with. We're told to expose. We're told to put away whatever doesn't honor God. To not even be near it. 
Don't associate with it. It's time for us to draw our line, I think. To go against fear and in boldness and with courage, say no more tolerating sin and unrighteousness in our lives. No more compromising the holy standard that God has called us to live to through His Son. No more idly sitting by while the enemy pushes on with deception and darkness all around us. And I've got some specific areas. Now, it's not a comprehensive list, but I've got some specific areas, some main focal points that the Lord has shown me for each and every demographic in this room tonight that we need to draw a line in. So I'm going to start with the men first. You ready, guys? Men, draw your line on purity. Draw your line on purity. It's the one thing I know we don't want to hear, but it's the one thing that needs to be said. Draw your line on purity. There is perhaps no one greater area of focused assault that the enemy is keyed on than this for men. The latest reports estimate that a little over 50% of Christian men watch porn once a month. 47% of households across our country report pornography as a problem within their homes. 47%. Now listen, fellas, if you think sacrificing purity is a victimless crime, you're horrifically mistaken. What we do as men affects all levels within the home and the church. As a matter of fact, in verse 17, Phineas references what happened at a place called Peor. I want to give you a glimpse of what happened. In Numbers chapter 25 and verse 1, it simply says this, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. In other words, the men got a little loose. And they started to fool around in areas and with people that they shouldn't have been fooling around with. And the result of that was God sent a plague among his people. And over 20,000 people ended up dead as a result of it. What I'm trying to get you to hear, men, is that when you sacrifice purity, it will always lead to plague. 20,000 dead. And when we as men choose to sacrifice purity, it will always be followed by plague. It will plague your marriage. It will plague your home. It will plague reputations. It will plague churches. And all the while, death will be following in its footsteps. I wonder, how much money would you pay to keep your search history from being displayed on these screens tonight? How much money would you be willing to drop in order to keep what's hidden still hidden? Not, I told you it was challenging tonight. See, excited anxiousness. It's not popular. It's not cool. But it's the challenge. It's time that as men we step up and draw our line on purity. And I'm talking across the board. I'm not talking just about your browser. Job 31.1, Job as a man of God said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How can I look upon a virgin with lust? A covenant with my eyes. I'm not just talking about your web browser. I'm talking about your daily walk. I'm talking about when you go to the grocery store. I'm talking about when you go to the gym. I'm talking about when you're at the ball field. 
I'm talking about your mind when you're sitting at home unoccupied and it gets idled. Everything about it needs to be filtered through the purity of the Holy Spirit that we claim to live within us. And draw the line. Job drew a line. He made a covenant not to go there. Married men, single men in the room tonight make a covenant to purity. Draw your line on it. But then on top of that, draw your line on priority. This is something that's a little more subtle, but it's just as scary. So many men today have fallen into the trap of prioritizing things in a wrong way positionally. Now let me explain what I mean by that. As men, we all have things that we consider to be priority. A lot of us would consider to be work to be a priority. A lot of us would consider family to be a priority. If you're like me, you might consider hunting and fishing to be a priority. It's hunting season right now. My wife knows that's a priority in my life. I'm afraid to admit it. She's like, well, it's always some kind of season. It's hunting season. It's fishing season. It's always some kind of season, and it's always a priority. Now, that priority has a position, just like everything else does in my life. Sports might have a priority in your life, men, young men. All those things might have a priority. Now, where a lot of men have gotten trapped is where they're choosing to position those priorities, where we're choosing to place those things within our lives. A lot of us prioritize work because we want to provide for our family. We want them to have a comfortable living. We want our kids to have all the things that they enjoy having. That's fine. I get that. 100%. Not downing that whatsoever. A lot of us prioritize our family. We prioritize our kids. And you absolutely should. 100%. You need to be at the ball games. You need to know that it's important. They need to know that it's important. You need to push them to be as good as they can be. Listen, I get that 100%. A lot of us prioritize outdoor hobbies, just like I do. I get that. I understand all that. But nothing should exceed the priority that Christ holds in our life as men of God. Everything else falls underneath His priority in our lives. Listen, I grew up playing sports and enjoying all those things. My parents, my dad, he spent countless hours in the yard throwing batting practice to me, playing 21 with basketball, all those things. We were all about sports. We were all about being at the game. But listen, I understood that those things never took priority over being in the house of God and sitting underneath his teaching. So that meant if we had to show up in the third inning instead of being there for the first pitch, that would happen. If we had to leave in the fifth inning before we got to the seventh inning, that's what happened from time to time. And that's not popular. It's not a cool thing to do with your kids nowadays. And you might think they may hate and despise you for it. My parents probably thought they were running a risk in that. They did 100%, but let me tell you, the risk paid off. I understood where the priority should be. Men, prioritize your life in the right way positionally. And, and verse 13 so you look back in the narrative, it says, The people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, and with him ten chiefs, one from each tribal family of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. Listen to me. These were men. And these were men who held God and their worship of Him as their top priority. Draw your line, men. Draw your line, and make it clear to your wife, to your kids, to the rest of your family that this household prioritizes Christ. All right, man, you're off the hook. Women, your turn. Women, draw your line on comparison. 
Draw your line on comparison. This is a historical struggle for you ladies. Sarah struggled with comparing herself to Hagar. Leah struggled with comparing herself to Rachel. This one might not be as familiar, but you can go check out the book of Samuel. Peninnah struggled with comparing herself to Hannah. This is a historical age-old battle for you ladies. I was at a restaurant the other day eating with some friends, and I overheard a conversation in the booth behind me between two ladies. And when I joined in on the conversation, this is what I heard. You should have seen what she wore last night. I'm going to tell you, it was anything but flattering for her. And then the other day, we were over at their house. You should have seen how they had the inside decorated. I can't believe she would put that furniture. She had pictures on the walls. I'm just like, where did you get this? The thrift store? That's a real conversation. I'm not making this up. This actually happened. These two ladies are sitting there having lunch with each other. And they were comparing, this lady was, comparing herself to this other woman that she was talking about. And it wasn't in a positive way by any means, but that's just the game the enemy wants to play with you ladies. It's one that's a comparison contest. And it's so detrimental. Listen, it's so detrimental because nine out of ten times, comparison highlights what you perceive as present in others' lives but absent in yours. Why can't I have that figure? Why can't I have that home? Why can't I have that husband? Why can't I have those kids? It's time, ladies, to, to draw the line on comparison and stop tolerating and entertaining that mentality within your life because has God not given you so much? Has God not blessed your life so richly? And a lot of this gets perpetuated, especially in the lives of you younger ladies that are here tonight. A lot of this gets perpetuated by social media. Can I make an encouraging suggestion that might sound somewhat harsh? Why don't you trade your scrolling for some scripture? In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, Paul says this about comparison. He says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. You know what Paul has to say about comparison? It's foolish. People who compare are without understanding. You know what they're without understanding in? What God has given them. And so to fall into this comparison trap is to fall into a foolish trap that the enemy lies out in front of you. So draw your line. When the, attendant, when the enemy attempts to get your focus on what you lack, hold on to the truth of who you have and what you have been given because of his good graciousness in your life. We've got blackout blinds in Graham's room so he can sleep. And I don't know if we should take them back or what because the sleeping part's not really working like we thought it should. And so we've got blackout blinds in his room, and the whole purpose is, is to not let any light in and really for nobody to be able to see out either. We don't want him laying in the bed, rolled over in his crib with the window open so he can get distracted by what's going on outside and thus not fall asleep even more than he already doesn't. And so we've got blackout blinds on the windows. Listen to me, ladies. When you fall into this comparison trap, it's like putting blackout blinds on your life. You can't see around you at all that God has given you. But you also can't see within you at all that he has given you. 
Those need to be pulled down. You need to draw your line on comparison. The Bible talks so much about contentment. You know why? Because contentment is the killer of comparison. Draw your line on comparison. Draw your line on inadequacy. A lot of times this gets fed by comparison. When I compare it, it leads to feelings of inadequacy. So I asked Ashley the other day what one of her greatest struggles as a woman was. She said, inadequacy. It's this pressure to measure up. It's feeling like you're never enough. It's this inability to fulfill your role, she thinks, as a wife, as a mom, as an employee. And I know a lot of you women can relate to that very thing as well. And because you feel inadequate in these areas, it causes you to feel inadequate before the Lord. I mean, who could actually be the Proverbs 31 woman, right? Who could actually do that? Let's read it just for a second. An excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm. I mean, that right there in and of itself is almost an impossibility when your husband's acting a fool around the house. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night. Who's getting up before daylight? You get the picture. You don't live up to that. I'm inadequate. I can't, I can't. You're right, you can't. The Holy Spirit within you can. The enemy wants to pick at your inadequacies and it's time to draw the line on them. You are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, ladies. And no matter how unloved or how unappreciated or how worthless or pathetic the world may tell you because you can't do all these things and you can't have this Pinterest looking life at your home or within your marriage or with your kids, no matter what the world wants to tell you about your, those things, your father is for you. In Genesis 16 and verse 13, as a matter of fact, Hagar felt miserable as a woman, completely inadequate because of her standing with her mistress and with her master Abraham and Sarah. But God spoke to her life, and he said, I'm going to bring you blessing, Hagar. I haven't forgotten about you. And after he had a conversation with her in verse 13, he says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Ladies, God sees you. He doesn't think that you're inadequate. As a matter of fact, you're the wife to that husband. You're the mom to those kids. You're the employee at that place because God called you to that purpose, and he has equipped you for that calling. Listen, solidified identity leads to silenced inadequacy. So become confident in who you are in Christ, ladies, and draw your line on inadequacy. And the next time it taps on your door, say, uh -uh, nope. No more. Ladies, you're off the hook. Students, draw your line on relationships. Yes, I'm talking about dating and I'm talking about friends. Listen to me when I say this. Be careful who you get close to. You guys, you need to learn to start drawing a line on your relationships. Fill your life with people who love and honor God and push you to do the same. Listen, me and Matt see too many students entertaining relationships with people that they shouldn't be. See it all the time. And nothing, listen, nothing will drag you away from walking with God faster than walking with the wrong crowd. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul says, Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. These people that we just read about, they were ready to go to war with their own nation because they thought the people were rebelling against God and they were going to have nothing to do with them. That's how serious they were about the people that they were around. 
and the people that they hung out with. Who you associate yourselves with, students, matters. I want to show you something from experience, but also from observance. Proverbs 12, 26, listen to this. It says, one who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Listen, ungodly relationships lead to compromise. When you surround yourself with ungodly relationships, it will always lead to compromise. We see it all the time. I promise you will compromise on sexual purity. You will compromise on godly character. You will compromise on the decisions that you make. Whereas you would have never imagined it at one time, now all of a sudden you'll take that drink. Where you never would have imagined it at one time, now all of a sudden you'll take that hit. You will compromise on locations where at one time you would have never imagined seeing yourself in those places, all of a sudden you'll end up there. Ungodly relationships will lead to compromise. But listen to me. Godly relationships lead to Christ-likeness. When you surround yourself with people who love Jesus and fill their lives with Jesus, and they push you to be more like Jesus, it will fill your life with a Christ-likeness. People who come in, students who come into this place and they get plugged in and they stay plugged in and they dig their roots, it's always because they surround themselves with other godly students that encourage them to do the same thing. And the exact opposite is true. Those who walk out the door that we never see again surround themselves with ungodly people who pull them away. Draw your line on relationships, students, and surround yourself with the right kind of people. Then draw your line on social acceptance as well. There are so many things that the world wants to tell you are acceptable and okay to participate in. That it's okay to sow your wild oats, so to speak, and do your thing. To live it up, to have a good time, that love is love and truth is whatever you want it to be. But you guys need to draw the line. What is socially accepted is not spiritually accepted. God's word has a standard. And it doesn't bend to it just because the social world does. And the same should be true in your life for those of you who call yourselves sons and daughters of the king. Draw the line. Be bold, be courageous, be willing to take a stand. Look, it's not easy. That's stuff I'm telling you, I told you, it's a challenge. It's not easy. Much easier said than done. Much easier preached than practiced. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it can be ignored. Go against the world. And go with the word instead of vice versa. Stop going against the word to go with the world. God desires for you to live in a way that honors him amongst your peers. But you got to draw your line. Say, I'm not going there when everybody else does. Students, you're off the hook. Let's put the whole church on the line as we finish up. Church. Let's draw our line on unity. When these people thought that the three tribes were breaking away from faith in God, they knew that it would cause division and ultimately hurt them as a nation. So they came together in a unified front to address the issue. Listen, nothing hurts the church more than being ununified. Nothing hurts the church more than being divided and set against each other. There's a reason why Jesus in John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer, when he was praying within the context of the church, prayed for unity more than he did anything else because it was just that important. 
And listen, at the same time, I don't think there's anything that terrifies the enemy more than a unified church. Why? Because he knows what that body of believers is capable of accomplishing when they are unified in the Holy Spirit and His power. It scares him. It brings to his mind all too vividly a remembrance of what Jesus said when he spoke, I will build my church. And guess what, devil? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why? Because they are unified in my name. So that being said, the devil will do whatever he can to get brother set against brother, to get sister set against sister, so that we will be divided and at each other's throats rather than at his. Let's set our hearts on unity. I want to be a part of a body of believers who stand for each other instead of standing against each other. Hey, listen. I think Jesus deserves it. Does He not? Does the one who died for His bride not deserve His bride to be unified? But not only that, I think the world desires it. We live in what may be the most divisive time in all of history. And you know what I've heard on certain news channels that I've never heard before? Well, this country needs to come together. The world desires to see unity. What better true picture for them to see of it than here? Than amongst God's people. Unified together. And I can't help but look at it and be intrigued by it. You know why? Because it can't be accomplished anywhere else. Only within the church can true unity be found. Why? Because only the Holy Spirit can provide. We need to draw our line on unity. And we need to draw our line on purpose. And what I mean by that is clearly understanding and fulfilling the purpose God has in us being here, which is to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. So many churches have lost touch with the primary reason for why they exist. They've become houses of entertainment because the people that fill them demand entertainment. And in the process, they have become so inwardly focused that they no longer have a touch with the community around them. Is that us? Is that going to be us? Not if we draw our line on purpose. My prayer is that we as a church would draw our line on purpose, that we would never lose sight or focus of why it is that God has placed us here within this specific community. Other places might, but we're not going to go there, I pray. I pray that we would be unified, and I pray that we would be on mission, on purpose, for the glory and the gospel of God, that it would never be said of Underwood that we've lost touch with the community around us. Because we've lost touch with the gospel about us. Listen, this, all this, when we come together, guys, as a church, and I'm going to talk to myself. This doesn't exist for my preference. This doesn't exist for my ambition. This doesn't exist for my entertainment. This doesn't exist for my comfort. It exists for the glory and the gospel of God. And if we're going to be known by our community and our city, let it be for that reason. When people talk about the fellowship at Underwood Baptist Church, amongst this place, 
May it be said that those are a people who are unified for the glory and the gospel of the Savior that they proclaim. Not that we've got the greatest facilities. Not that we can put on a show or an entertainment production or anything like that. But that we come together for the common purpose and the common mission that Jesus has left us here on this church as His hands and His feet and His voice to this city, to this community, to this country, to the nations around us. Unified on our purpose. Setting everything else aside so that the gospel can go forward. This is about Jesus. This is about His glory. This is about His honor. Listen, these people drew a line. And they also stood a witness. In verse 34, it says, The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Elijah drew a line against Ahab and Jezebel. And Mount Carmel stood as a witness. David drew a line against Goliath and carried his head around as a witness. Daniel drew a line against the king's edict, and the lions stood as a witness. Esther drew a line against the king, and Haman hung as a witness. Joshua and Caleb drew a line against faithlessness, and their faithfulness stood as a witness. Peter and John drew a line against the Sanhedrin, and their boldness stood as a witness. Jesus himself drew a line against sin and death, and the cross stands as a witness. A few chapters later, Joshua would challenge the people one more time, saying, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, you know the rest? We will serve the Lord. Men, draw your line. Women, draw your line. Students, draw your line. Church, draw your line. And may our response tonight stand as a witness between us that this day we chose the Lord. This is Doug Ferris, and I'm blessed to be the pastor here at Underwood Baptist Church. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. It's our prayer that you'll do more than listen to the sermon or gather religious information. We want you to encounter God, and we pray that He will impact your life. If you'd like to contact us for any reason, please go to our website at underwoodbaptist.org. All our contact information is there, and we look forward to hearing from you. I hope you are blessed by today's message.